you sort of have to set your ego and pride aside and you have to start cold emailing anyone you can get your hands on. And I sent out hundreds of cold emails every single week. And the way that filtered down was a hundred cold emails would end up getting about 10 people to agree to jump on a call. Three would kind of be like, yeah, let's give it a try. And then one would end up being a client. I mean, it it felt like if I sent a hundred, one could end up giving me a, a chance. to the Future Podcast, a show that explores the interesting overlap between design, marketing, and business. I'm Greg Gunn. I don't know about you, but when it comes to copywriting, I start sweating and forget how to use the English language. Maybe it's a lack of vocabulary, but my words taste like plain oatmeal. There's nothing wrong with them. They're just really boring, which is why I always appreciate great copy. It's simple. It's clear and it tickles your brain if done right. Today's guest is a creative writer. By day, he runs a small advertising business called Honey Copy, but by night, he writes and publishes poetry under the alias January Black. So yeah, he's got lots to say, and he does it without mincing words, but in a way that will kind of make you smirk too. In this episode, he and Chris talk about the nuance and challenges of language and how to wield it with grace. We'll hear about how he found writing, why he left a well-paying agency job for manual labor, and how to name a $15 cookie so that people will happily pay for it. Please enjoy our conversation with Cole Schaefer. Cole, excited to talk to you. I saw your tweet, and uh, it's nice to know that you're also aware of what we're doing here. So uh, for people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. My name is Cole Schaefer. I am a creative writer over at a small uh, advertising shop called Honey Copy, where I write advertising that hopefully doesn't sound like advertising for brands of all shapes and sizes. And when I'm not doing that, I am writing poetry under the alias January Black uh, on Instagram, where I have a couple books of poetry and prose out, and I have a third one coming out very, very soon. There's a bunch of things already just in that introduction I need to talk to you about. I know you do these interviews, for, but for people who don't know, I'm just going to dig into some of the, your your history and, and your kind of what makes you unique. If that's okay with you. Absolutely. Okay. So I, I was on your side, Honey Copy, and just looking at the way that you write, it does sound very different. Tell me a little bit about your style of writing and how you developed it. So I think the reason I write uh, differently than probably most copywriters is is probably because I don't have any sort of formal, you know, education in writing and I haven't read a ton of the sort of OG advertising books. You know, I'm aware of the Gary Halberts and the, the Joe Sugarmans and all that, but uh, I haven't, they, they were never sort of my teachers. My teachers were Hemingway and, and Steinbeck and and some really stunning writers in, in fiction. And that those were always the people that I really admired. And I try to, even though I understand that copywriting is about selling things, you know, I try to do that with pretty words, not just uh, try, in, a, in car salesmen, sort of leaving people feeling uncomfortable and stuff. 
Mm -hmm. And I get a very conversational tone in the way that you write. There is a certain self-confidence and a swagger to it, the, the way you write, especially on your on your website. So uh, did, did this feel like it was the right thing to do or did, did this develop over time? So it, it it's never been a super intentional choice. You know, I, I think that something I, I like to warn people about is when I'm honey coffee, right? And I'm writing under honey coffee. I'm a very different person than if you were to go out and have coffee with me or have a beer or hang out. I am not arrogant in person. I never try to make people feel uncomfortable or anything like that. But with writing, you know, I think that there's sort of an alter ego that comes into play with, with some of that stuff. And I try to definitely shoot people straight um, when I'm writing. But it's it, it has never been an intentional choice. I think more so it's the tone has just developed as I've as I've written and it's felt very very natural for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I'm I'm trying to read some of the things that you're really known for because you a writer writes and that's what I'm reading. I'm like, wow, okay, this <laughs> yeah. is pretty cool. So you have a, a a very successful newsletter. You're talking about like how people really like show up and want to hear your thoughts on this thing. You talk about this. Uh, this guide of copywriting that you've written. I think you have a course or maybe courses. I, mm-hmm. I, I think I've heard that too. And then you're also a hired gun in, in terms of like your, your business as honey copy. How does it all break up? Like what does your honey copy writing empire look like in terms of like the different things that you're doing? Sure. So about 50% of my income comes strictly through being a hired gun, a freelancer for, um, various brands. And I've always believed that you should be super niche about the services that you offer, but you shouldn't necessarily be niche about the clients that you're working with. So the clients I work with are in a number of different industries, whether it's cannabis or uh, some type of SaaS startup or even Bowflex, you know, they're, they're in a number of different industries. So that makes up about 50% of my take at the end of the year. And then the other 50% is through my courses, which is a copywriting course, a freelance course, and then also my uh, books of poetry as well. And you were describing something like, uh, there's like what you do. Um, did you use the words like what you do by day, your day job is the writing part. And then your night jobs, all this other fun, cool stuff that you're doing, including the poetry and, and going under the name of January black. Is that, is that the mix right there? Yeah, that's the mix. I mean, the, the, the courses are obviously under honey copy and under myself, but the poetry, that's me moonlighting, you know, at night, I I love to write poetry and, um, I'm using a lot of the stuff I'm learning in advertising to market that poetry, you know, and, and I've sort of created this alter ego, January black, where maybe some of the things that I'm writing in poetry are a little bit, uh, more provocative than what I'm writing on honey copy and I can create that separation a little bit and, and really stamp it in the ground as like, this is, this is art. It's not advertising, you know, so there should be some distance between, between me and, and, and what I'm creating there. Mm-hmm. When you create this alter ego, this is really interesting to me. You create an alter ego. Does it allow you to become someone else? Sure. Sure. So I am, um, I'm actually in the middle of releasing my third book now and it, with it, I'm releasing the alter ego. So uh, nobody even knows the name right now. Um, but for that alter ego, you know, we've done videos where I have black mascara on and I'm in a black suit and I am uh, have my fingernails painted black and I'm a completely different person. Uh, and that's been very intentional because, you know, I, there's something strange about writing. Like 
you you have to be careful what you write because people can easily begin to associate that almost too much with you as a person. So I think sometimes when you can create that alter ego, it creates that distance. But yeah, it has allowed me to write in a different way than what I'd maybe write for Honey Copy. And so who do you feel more like? Like like who you are or your alter ego or or is it neither or both? So I, I kind of joke that uh, January Black is everything that uh, I, I wish I could be, right? So he's uh, doesn't have to worry about uh, losing his hair, probably uh, does much better with women, is much more sweet-talking, more, um, more swagger. He uh, has no insecurities, probably has a bigger dick than me. I mean, probably makes more money than me. I mean, he's... So there, there's aspects of him that are me, but he's, he's, yeah. he's not me, you know, and, and, and I can pretend to be him at night when I sit down at the typewriter, you know? Yeah. Are there, are there rituals or ceremony that you go through to like step into character? Do you go full Christian Bale on this or is it just once you, once your finger touches the keyboard, you're, you're, you're that person. Yeah. I'd say it, it, it really comes out when I'm, when I'm writing the the poetry that this is, this is January, you know, this isn't as much coal anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and people who know of you as both people, do they think like, Hey man, you can't say that. Mm-hmm. And, and then like, how's that going to affect you as Cole as the copywriter who's a hired gun? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I've, I've fortunately never had a lot of my clients will follow me on follow both of both writings. So I've never had any major issue there. I'm sure it will eventually come, but the main thing is, is like, there's, there's, places I'm willing to go and, and push the boundaries and be provocative. And then there's other places I'm not like, I, I don't ever want to push the boundaries on race or like politics or anything in that realm. But I am okay with talking about sex and alcohol and, and more of like maybe the wild sides of being in your twenties, you know, and, and that exploration. But uh, so I think it's choosing where you want to go. But I think with that, it's never being, afraid or above apologizing. You know, I've, I've had to apologize a few times where maybe I cross a line, like a good example. So I'm, my dad's half Japanese and my mother's half Syrian. Uh, and so I consider myself pretty well cultured, but a growing up a common sort of schoolyard taunt that people would use if you gave them something and they didn't give it, give you it back was, uh, don't be an Indian giver, which it has become a very derogatory term. Um, but anyways, like in my newsletter that goes out to almost 15,000 people now, I accidentally used the term, you know, and I, and I didn't mean to hurt anyone. I didn't mean to uh, step on anyone's toes or um, and having grown up being called some derogatory terms towards Asian people. I knew like, oh, man, that that probably hurts some people. And so I just like publicly apologized. And and so I think it's being willing to push the boundaries. But when you push it too far and you're hurting people, then I think you just take a step back and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm learning and I'm, and I'm sorry, you know, and, and being genuine in that apology too. Did you grow up in America? Uh, I did. I did. I grew yeah. up in Southern Indiana, but my grandmother was full Japanese. So when I, I'd spent half of every week at her house and that was like just stepping into Japan, you know, she'd speak to me and, Japanese, even though I couldn't understand it. And it, she, she made sure that I was very, very aware of like that, that side of my heritage. Mm. Okay. This, this is real interesting. I didn't intend the conversation to go here, but I can relate to what you're saying. 
Um, I, I came to America when I was three years old and there were some, some issues about race I didn't fully understand. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that term that you said, Indian giver, I think it's part of like um, maybe the way that we, we grew up in America where the popular culture says this and it mm-hmm. seems to be normal mm-hmm. until you start to understand how offensive it can be. And, mm-hmm. and we're seeing that still happen, like with people like the Washington Redskins finally saying, OK, these are people that it's not a mascot and you can't just do that because it's not actually honoring Native Americans. And so Absolutely. we're starting to discover all that stuff. And so I can see how, like, even for me growing up, I would use terms like that's racist against me. What am I saying? <laughs> yeah, Why would I yeah. even say that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so this goes out and then you 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 hear the feedback and then you like a man, you adjust and you apologize and you learn and. And you move on, right? Absolutely. And I, th- I think uh, it's so important for, for riders to recognize that language changes, you know, and what's appropriate today might not be appropriate tomorrow. And right. even though I don't think anyone should have really ever been using the term Indian giver, you know, as someone who's Japanese, there was a point in time where the word, I'm not going to say it, but J-A-P was, yeah. you could say it, you know, it wasn't right. a big deal, but Nowadays, like if I hear someone say it, I have this very visceral reaction where um, I'm like, oh, you know, it's a cringe. And I polite, very politely just let them know, hey, that to some people can be a little bit offensive. You know, would you mind not using that? But I think that's also really important for people to recognize, like whether you're a writer or not, is just have grace with people because everyone has grown up in different parts of the world. And I think that it has to be, we have to approach those situations from a place of like understanding and education rather than being verbally violent towards them because they said something that they don't totally recognize was wrong, like in that moment. Right. I think you're, you're using the, the velvet glove versus the, the cast iron glove to, to, to respond to that saying you may or may not be aware and now you're aware and Mm -hmm. the decisions you make from this day forward, that's kind of on you and not on me at this point. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I love that. Um, I'm always fascinated by by people who who work in the creative space because it's not, I don't think, part of the natural way that we we kind of wake up one day when we're a kid thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to be a copywriter. I'm going to make a course on on copywriting and and how to freelance. I'm I'm curious if you can retrace your steps back to maybe like you're pre aware of it even that writing may be your jam. Do you know where you are, what you're doing, and then it becomes sort of clear at that moment? Sure. So I think that for a lot, the reason, and this is a theory, but I think the reason for creatives why um, finding that vocation is such a big experience is because it's it's this, in my opinion, this journey into adulthood in a lot of ways, where previously defining that, that creative pursuit we are children. And I think it's important to remember that like, you can be an adolescent until you're 35, like if you, if you don't grow up. And um, for most of my childhood, uh, it was basketball in Indiana. Um, basketball is religion. I mean, the high school gyms are five, six, 7,000 people. And um, I worked really hard at that and eventually played some college ball at um, Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, my grandmother, who I had just mentioned, um, one day I got a call from my dad late at night and said, you know, she was not like something really bad happened. And, um, later my grandfather would tell me was that, um, they were at her house and they're in her kitchen and they're flirting. Like they were 18 again, (laughs) you know, like they've, they've, they've been together since they were 20. 
Um, and he goes, we, we went and got some ice cream out of the freezer and I made her a bowl and I made myself a bowl and, um, they went into separate rooms cause he loves watching sports and she loved watching Korean dramas. It was real common in like uh, Japanese culture and he heard a crash and a scream and, uh, she dropped dead from an aneurysm and that was really, really tough because it was one, like losing someone who was your best friend. But in addition to that, it was like my first look at this idea that like of mortality, right? And I remember spending much of the remaining year falling out of love with basketball. The party was over. I mean, she watched 950 out of the thousand games I played, you know, growing up. And so for me, it was like, if we're all going to die, why am I shooting this ball through the hoop? And um, I mourned her loss uh, in this beautiful cathedral that uh, that sits high above Bellarmine's campus. I mean, it's it's gorgeous and it has these windows that run from floor to ceiling and they're they're like as big as invisible giants. And you can just like look out at them at, at Louisville. I mean, it's gorgeous. And um, there was a piano in there and I didn't know how to play piano at the time, but I would just sit down and play with the keys. And I began uh, writing lines to the music I was playing. And that was sort of this catalyst moment, I think, where I realized that writing could not just be this thing that you had to do in school, but it could be this thing that could get you through, you know, whatever it was you were, you were experiencing. And um, from that point on, I'm not going to say that I knew I wanted to write advertising. I knew I wanted to be a writer. But it was this this transition where I think I not only fell, started falling in love with writing in that moment, but I also recognized that like we're all killing off our youth for something, and I didn't want it to be basketball anymore, so I quit basketball, and um, I've since decided that that sacrifice is is writing, you know. Wow, that's powerful. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. Um... I wonder if your your grandmother didn't pass away in that moment, would you still be a writer today or would you be playing basketball or doing something different? I wonder that sometimes too. You know, yeah. I, I, I truly, and I don't, I don't have an answer. I, I'd hope I'd find writing. Yeah. Like eventually it finds you, you find it. Right. Right. But it sounded to me like in that moment, uh, with your closeness, uh, your, your relationship with your grandmother and her passing, uh, you you found writing as a way to process what you were going through, your pain, and maybe to to be able to heal yourself. And then mm-hmm. you recognized it in some some maybe that was just the beginning. As you said, it wasn't like that moment forward. I'm going to be a copywriter and work in advertising. So where else does it is it pop up in the timeline where you're like, okay, this is something I can't ignore. Uh, there's something here. Sure. So um, three years later, I graduate from the University of Southern Indiana because I transferred after basketball didn't uh, work out and I decided to, to walk away. And uh, I did what most college grads do. I went to work for a company and I got about a month or two months into this company. It was actually a, a small town kind of um, agency, but I wasn't riding there. I wasn't doing any sort of riding. And uh, my boss was great. The employees there were great. The agency did good work, but I hated it, you know. And I think that something that's really important to recognize in yourself is: are you, are you a good employer or not? Um, there's a really famous uh, Chuck Daly story, who was the the 
the infamous coach of the Detroit Pistons who coached Dennis Rodman for a long time, where uh, Dennis Rodman was mouthing off in practice and one of the assistants was really getting into him and Chuck Daly called him over and he said, leave Rodman alone. You can't put a saddle on a Mustang. And I think that that story resonates with a lot of entrepreneurs and freelancers and creatives where they kind of do feel a little bit like that Mustang that society is wanting to throw a saddle on them. And it resonated with me a lot. And so anyways, I'm working in this agency and I'm hating my job. And I am talking about wanting to be a writer. I'm talking about like making a living in writing, but I'm not making that jump. And one day I stand up from my desk and I walk out which I don't recommend doing. I regret doing that. And I emailed my boss and the next day we left on really, really good terms. Uh, and I started working for this construction company. And the reason I did that is I could work from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. every day. And then once I got off work, I could write and write and write and work on my craft. And the first day at that construction company, my boss hands me uh, car keys. He hands me a utility knife, duct tape, and an address on a, a slip of paper. And so I I remember thinking, this feels like I'm a hitman now or like I'm going to go murder someone. And so I get in this, this beat up van and all summer long, I'm going into these old apartment buildings and tearing out carpet. Uh, and, and how that works is you're, you're driving a knife through the carpet, you're ripping, you're rolling it up, you're wrapping duct tape around it, throwing it over your shoulder. And it's just nasty, nasty work. And irony would have it that my agency decides to get a renovation done on their building. She, my boss has no idea I work there. Uh, they hire my construction company to do the renovation. So I'm back in my agency, uh, with my ex-employees, I'm tearing out carpet. Um, no one's like looking down on me, but they are kind of having this look like what the heck has gotten into Cole? You know, like he was, he, he, he kind of had like a great job. Now he's tearing out carpet. And um, I remember that moment was a, was a very, very uh, intense moment because I felt lower than low, but I also recognized that I would rather, if for the rest of my life I have to work manual labor to pay the bills while I pursue this dream of riding at night, that hurts a hell of a lot less than sitting in a cubicle working at, working a job that I don't like, you know? And, and for me, that was rock bottom and I haven't looked back since. I, I think I might've missed that detail when you said you stood up at your desk and then something happened, but then you called your boss. Did you literally walk on the job? Did you like stand up on your desk and say something? No, no, I wasn't rude. I just okay. literally, she wasn't okay. in the office at the time. I just stood up uh, and walked out of the building, you know, and went home. Uh, and that's definitely not something I'm proud of. I think that, uh, it's like the equivalent to ghosting someone, but, uh, yeah. but fortunately, you know, I emailed her and said, Hey, I'd love to come in tomorrow and, and really have a good conversation about like, you know, what's going on. And, um, we left on really good terms. So that's good. Okay. So this, this moment, okay. You're doing heavy, dirty, physical labor, you know, I, I know what it's like when you move a carpet, it's like dust and dust mites and it's okay, but you're doing this, but you, you're, that's the price you pay to work on your dream. The thing that fulfills you. Right. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine like, you're like, it's ironic. I have to go back there and like, I'm, I'm doing this lower manual labor job and, and that must've felt pretty horrible, but you were pretty resolved in your mind at this point. Like I'd rather do this and feel this way because I get to be more of who I am. 
right? Sure. You're, you're spot on. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. So, um, let's, let's track forward. Then when you feel like you got your first big break in copywriting, getting paid, it's, I, I guess everybody could be a writer and everybody can be a good writer and fewer writers get paid to make a living. Right. So, and, and the theme of like a lot of things I talk about is how to help people make a living. That's the important part doing what they love. So where's that point when you're like, I've arrived, I've, I am now Cole, the writer. So I think, I, I think I became the writer uh, when I decided to walk away from that job because I was uh, to use sort of a story that Pressfield has used before, you know, burning, burning your ships ashore, right? Where I walked away from this, the cushy job, you know, or what felt cushy and I went all in on, on this dream. So I think as soon as you do that, you're turning pro in a way. And, and Pressfield has said that so many times, but that was the first day I felt like, okay, even though I'm making 15 bucks an hour cash tearing out carpet, I feel more professional than these other people who say they want to be writers, but aren't doing anything about it. Right. Or, and, and let me not even compare it to other people. Let me compare it to me, you know, the day before when I was saying I wanted to be a writer. Um, but how I started getting my first clients, and this is more tactical um, you you sort of have to set your ego and pride aside and you have to start cold emailing anyone you can get your hands on, you know, and that's what I was doing. I was researching cool startups and I chose startups versus more established brands because they're they have younger, younger people running them. They they're more open to risk. I think they it felt like they'd be more open to, to giving some kid a chance and and I was right. And I sent out hundreds of cold emails every single week. And the way that filtered down was a hundred cold emails would end up getting about 10 people to agree to jump on a call. Three would kind of be like, yeah, let, let's give it a try. And then one would end up being a client. I mean, it, it felt like if I sent a hundred, um, one could end up giving me a, a chance. And I did that for a year. And I eventually got to a place where I was making more money writing than I was tearing out carpet and it made sense to no longer <laughs> tear out carpet. That's really cool. So when, when you're sending out these emails, I guess you're going to, you figured out what works obviously, because mm -hmm. otherwise we would not be talking today because you'd still be slinging carpet and writing poetry or, or, yeah. or writing stories at night. What, ha what have you found out in terms of all these emails you must've sent out that works that gets people to like, Hey, there's a lot of noise. You got to do something to fight that noise. So what did you discover? Sure. So when I first started out, I was very uh, spammy, right? Um, and I think that sometimes you're that way when you're desperate and you're like, I need to find someone to work with me. And um, with that, I would write really long emails. But now like I'm on the other side of it where I'm kind of the person receiving the cold emails. And I can't tell you how many times I get a, a note from a aspiring writer and it's four or five paragraphs, like a four or five paragraph email. And when you have dozens and dozens and dozens of emails hitting your inbox every day, for me to read that, then for me to turn out and turn around and respond thoughtfully, that could be a 30 minute to 45 minute long process. So when you're sending someone that long of an email, and especially if you're doing so cold, you're not just asking them to respond. You're really asking them for money because if you value your hour at $200, $300, $400, if I'm going to respond thoughtfully to this person's email and I'm spending 30 minutes on it, that might cost me 
$250, to do that. So I think you have to be incredibly respectful of the people you're reaching out to and recognize like they're very busy. So write two to three lines in that email and always at the end of that email, ask for exactly what it is you want. I always show new freelancers tough love where they'll send me a super long email and I'll get to the bottom of it. And this is when I've, I have read them and there's no, there's no call to action, right? That's copywriting 101. By the end of it, I have to know what you want me to do. And I'll respond and I'll say, write me again, do it in with 25% of the words and just ask me exactly what you want me to do for you. And I'll see if I can help. Uh, and the people who take the time to do that, like I try to always help them, but I learned that more on the other side of it, where I'm like, you're reaching out to busy creative directors and CMOs and entrepreneurs, and you think that uh, they have the time to read a 400 word email, they just don't. So keep it super short, be honest, be human, and always ask exactly what it is you want by the end of that email. A um, couple of thoughts on that, which is, could you give us an example of what you think is, is a good call to action at the end of an email? Sure. So let's say I'm reaching out to Bowflex to write copy for Bowflex. And um, most people might approach that and say, I'm going to reach out to Bowflex's creative director and, and to see if they need a, a copywriter. Um, and they might say, like, can I write copy for Bowflex? The better approach is to take a specific product Bowflex is selling and get really, really focused on that one product. So for example, Bowflex has a bike, it's called the C6. And uh, they that that is a competitor to Peloton. So being that Peloton is the behemoth in the market, if you're wanting to try to write copy for Bowflex, I think you're better off if you're in a cold email them saying, hey, I noticed that you all recently launched the C6 bike, I imagine, there's a lot of copy you're needing for that. Um, would you by chance be interested in looking at some of my work? There's a good chance they won't respond that, to that email. So then you email them again, three, four, five days later, and you say, um, hey, I know you're super busy. Um, I've done some work in the fitness industry and I just wanted to send you something I did for this small startup in LA You know that sells hydro-powered dumbbells or something, and uh, send them a link to that. And then if they don't respond again, send them a third email. And it might be, hey, I saw this email that Peloton sent out. I feel like there's an opportunity for us to do like a cool guerrilla marketing tactic on this. Are you interested? Here's the idea. And so I think like you have to get really specific versus taking more broad strokes. And something I always encourage people to do is if you're not getting responses, instead of applying and asking, just do it. So like Nora Ephron, who is, uh, who was arguably one of the most like culturally impactful writers of the past 50 years. She directed and wrote Her When Harry Met Sally and uh, Julie and Julia and this fabulous book called Heartburn about her divorce with um, Bernstein, who did the Watergate investigations and stuff. And uh, when she was first starting out, her dream was to write for the New York Post for whatever reason. And so she was 22. The New York Post, uh, get shut down because all the writers there go on strike. And so what Nora Ephron does is she writes a parody to the New York Post and editors get their hands on it and they're up in arms and they're offended and they're all upset. But the publisher at the New York Post reads the parody and she says, if this 
woman can write a parody of the New York Post. She can write for the New York Post, give her a job. And so they gave her a one-week trial. They gave her this story on uh, the New York Zoo where there were two hooded seals that got brought into the zoo to mate with one another because like uh, their population was super endangered. But the the seals weren't having sex. So it was like really awkward because like these seals weren't mating and, and they're their species depended on it. So she wrote this story on it. It ended up being a breakout success. Like New Yorkers found it hilarious. And then she had a job at the New York Post. So all that to say, if people aren't responding to your cold emails, do it without their permission, send it to them and see what they say versus just going strictly the cold email route. So don't apply, do. Nice. So when you were giving examples of like what the emails might sound like, it didn't sound like advertising. It just sounded like one person reaching out to another person. Is that part of the secret? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I think I think yeah. so. I think it's I think good advertising writing is viewing the brand as an individual um, and viewing the writing that you're doing to another individual, not a quote unquote target market. Right. And are there any things that you do to try to understand that individual? better so that you can more authentically speak and connect to them? Um, so generally when I'm doing like a voice guide for a brand, I'm having this conversation with the brand and saying if, actually I'll give you an example. So I'm, I got hired on to write copy for a um, cookie brand in LA called Last Crumb and their cookies sell for like 15 bucks a cookie. It's, it's absurd. And they like sell out and um, they hired me on and they said, just push the voices as, as far as you want. And a lot of the the development I've done was kind of like saying, okay, like who is the brand if the brand was a person? And so we were able to like come up with these really awesome product descriptions that weren't at all like, oh, this chocolate chip cookies, ooey gooey, like a normal product description. It was actually going into narratives because basically what we had discussed and decided was, if Last Crumb was a was our best friend, it would be someone who is charismatic, he's funny, but he's also a deep thinker, he's a storyteller, he's probably not always politically correct, and the descriptions like are, are pretty pretty spot on with like what we what we had written with that. Uh, can you read some of them? Is oh, it okay? Yeah, absolutely. I like to hear it. Yeah, because like fifteen dollar cookie. Yeah, what? Yeah. So, better be a really good cookie. Yeah, let me let me find a. Uh, find one real quick okay and is this a, the, the brand bible like uh, examples of how the brand should speak or is this literally like part of a the, the messaging they send out yeah so this is actually the these are all these are the cookies and the products so um i named all the products so for example instead of uh doing a chocolate chip cookie i named it uh the better than the better than sex cookie <laughs> um the the uh like this cookie is a peanut butter cookie i named it the madonna because uh madonna is like a huge fan of peanut butter there's like a secret society of peanut butter lovers so we we called it the madonna then the lemon cookie is when life gives you lemons um and i think like this is actually a really good example of of like a description so this one's called when life gives you lemons um and this is the description that i wrote uh, this cookie is as lemony as Snicket. It'll make your sucker pucker. Goddamn, that last bit was just wildly inappropriate. Anyway, while most lemon bars are as underwhelming as a week-old party balloon, 
our lemon bar cookie actually tastes like lemons are at the party, not like a bunch of lemons are chilling on their phones in the other room, caring more about showing the virtual world of Instagram. They're at the party versus actually being present in the physical world at the party with their friends who actually care about them, which is like a much larger question of can we truly experience anything physically if we aren't present both mentally and emotionally, but now we're just rambling we'll shut the hell up and just tell you about the ingredients. And then we dive into the, the ingredients. So <laughs> it's like these vignettes, right? Where um, they don't feel like product descriptions, but people are loving them, you know, and it's weird and it, it's worked so far. So do you think there's this uh, marriage of taste and what you're getting in your mouth and them reading the, the narrative and it completes the experience for, for a person? Yeah, I think so. I think that, so much of copy and design is creating like this, uh, you know, placebo effect. You know, I, I, Seth Godin talks about that a lot where it's less about the, you know, I, I think like part of a product being great is also creating, creating that magic around it. And I think that that's what design and copy can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the, we're complicit in the lie that is being told to us. And then we buy in, and so we the the cookie tastes better because we want it to taste better, and the wine is is bolder because it's already in our mind that way, right? And so you yeah. are making it a little easier for them to like. This is a story I want to tell myself when I eat this cookie. Exactly, I think so, and I, I think it's important as as writers and designers to uh, and marketers, right, um, to be very aware when you're a character in that story. Um, when I, uh, I got flew out to Minsk, Belarus to, to write copy for some startups out there. And before I left, I was like, I need a really good pair of boots cause it's freezing there. And so I go to the Red Wing store here in Nashville, Tennessee, and I walk in and this guy is there and he goes, have you ever bought a pair of Red Wings? And I go, no. And the way he walks me through the Red Wing experience was unbelievable. He like sat me down, he slips the boot on and he's kind of like squeezing my ankles as he's, he's bringing on this boot and he goes, and, and once I had it on and he had tied it up, he, he kind of stopped me and he goes, now I want you to know that by the time you're done wearing these boots uh, for the first couple of days, you're gonna wanna cut off your feet they're going to hurt so bad. You have to earn like the, this, this kind of red wings, you have to earn them. You know, they're, they're your, your ankles are going to bleed a little bit. They're going to hurt, but you get through that week. They're going to be the best boots you ever wear. That moment I was sold. I was sold. I was like, I have to earn these. I'm, I'm down. I, 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 I want them. Uh, and I walked away with 300 pair of red wing boots that made my ankles bleed all the way throughout Belarus. And as I'm wearing, I'm like, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm earning these, you know, and, and I still have those boots. Right. But imagine if he wouldn't have said that, imagine if he would have just given those to me and I'm, I'm in, in Minsk and my, my, my heels and my ankles are rubbed raw. And I'm like, this was the worst, worst purchasing decision I've ever made. But since he told me that story, all of a sudden it becomes this magical experience. You know, it becomes a part of, a part of me in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think he uh, he did a little neurolinguistic programming on you there to, <laughs> yeah. for you to recode the pain, your ankles bleeding and thinking yeah. these freaking stiff boots are tearing my feet apart. Yeah, But it now becomes like a badge of honor to survive <laughs> that, to say I'm tougher than the boot and I'm tougher than you pansies who are not going to go through this, right? Absolutely. I think that's, I think he, uh, 
it wasn't the first uh, kid he had sold boots to. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and was the pain worth it? Oh yeah, they're the. I still have them. I mean, it's been yeah. three years, um, and they're the best, best shoes, boots, anything I've ever earned. And that might just be the placebo ride, <laughs> but but I love them. You were complicit in that story. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I've fallen for them. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Cole. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to our conversation with Cole Schaefer. This ties into something that I, I firmly believe in that uh, we, we, we need meaning in our life. And when things don't make sense, we will form our own narrative. And oftentimes, if you don't give someone a good story, they make up a story that is not mm -hmm. beneficial to you and your brand. So give them the story and help them fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. So this cookie, I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't know if you're a cookie connoisseur, but how much of the actual taste of the cookie is the thing that drives the story? Or are you just the kind of guy who's like, let me look at that cookie. I got it. I'm going to, this is, you know, I'm going to do my thing. It, it, how does that work for you on a creative level? I'm sure. So one thing I will say is the cookies are the best cookies like I've ever had, had in my life. And I've, they sent me a box of 12 and I was just dumbfounded. They're that good. But something that, David Ogilvy would always do is he he believed that as an ad man, like you had to be your client's best client. So he he used all of his clients' products. And early on in your freelancing career, when you are dirt poor, you can't afford to use all of your clients' products, right? It's just not possible. Something that I'm trying to do more of, and I, I don't do it all the time, but I'm trying to do do this more is when I write copy for a product, I'm trying to use it. If I'm going to do it on an ongoing basis, I try to become my client's best client. So when I was writing for Bowflex, um, I remember being at a bar one night and they were talking about the Peloton bike. And I was like, no, 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 like you, you have to check out the C6 bike. You got to check out the C6 bike. And I think I might've like sold someone on that bike that night, but I think that's important. Like, I think you have to have that level of conviction in the brand you're working with um, because I do think it separates you from everybody else who's just doing it to get paid, right? Um, I think you have to have that kind of conviction in the the brands that you're writing for because the reader, right, and the customer and the the prospect, they can they can sense that. They can sense if you you don't believe in the product. So I try to only write for the brands that I truly believe in. I mean, I try to use the products, uh, and I'm trying to do more of that. Mm. Okay. We've uh, mentioned this before in terms of like your, your newsletter. 
getting someone's email address, that's a, that's kind of a big deal because you can try to yell at them from all over social media. But uh, to this day, I think uh, email conversions are very high relative to all other forms. And so what does somebody need to know in terms of effectively building out people who want to subscribe to your newsletter? What do you have to do? You have some tips for us? Sure. So my newsletters have been one of the best business decisions I've ever made. And I run three of them. I run uh, one called Sticky Notes, which is my largest kind of flagship newsletter. Then I run a second one called Stranger Than Fiction. And that's specifically about uh, it's it's. Uh, the, the pitch is batshit crazy marketing ideas that have made brands a lot of money. Um, and then the third one's a paid newsletter and it's called Chasing Hemingway. And it's really about my journey as a, as a writer, you know, hopefully trying to go from uh, competent and maybe good to hopefully one day like great. And I try to create like these metaphors constantly in that newsletter between writing and life and how those two exist like in a really magical way together because there are so many metaphors like, like between writing and living. Um, but I think if you're going to start a newsletter, it helps to be really specific with sticky notes. I I think it's a bit of an anomaly just because it's not super specific. I write about just about everything in that newsletter and it's done really well, but stranger than fiction where the promise is very focused and that's, I, look on the web for really cool marketing ideas that have made brands money. And I write about that each week. That newsletter grew really, really fast because it was so specific. I think like with podcasting, like if a podcaster was wanting to, to run a newsletter instead of saying, yeah, I write about podcasting. Why not say every single morning, I'm going to send you the one podcast episode you have to listen to for that day. Right. Because everyone, like I'm a podcast junkie. I experience it all the time. It's like Netflix. You get into Netflix, you're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and everything kind of looks good and you don't know what to watch. It happens all the time with podcasts. So if you're wanting to start a newsletter, I would just say, get very specific with the promise and don't view it as a newsletter, view it as a product, right? So Sticky Notes um, and Stranger Than Fiction and Chasing Hemingway, those to me are all products um, that I'm giving away for free each week. Chasing Hemingway is paid, but those other two, like I legitimately feel like they are, each one is worth someone paying 10 bucks, but I'm not asking them to do that. And so when you when you approach it as like, I'm creating this product, I think that you, um, you take the process a lot more seriously. And that's not me just talking out my my butt like i think if you were to subscribe to sticky notes you would see like i i those those three newsletters take up about 15 to 20 hours a week for me they're just that important to my business and i i just care a lot about them wow that is that's not just like hey let me spam your inbox this is like you're you're working on this now if you're spending half your work week writing these news newsletters so these go out once a week is that the cadence Yep. They go out once a week. And, um, the reason they've been so big is like, you know, I can, so I, I view like my marketing strategy. And I think this can be effective for anyone who's, who is uh, freelancing or an agency, but it's like this funnel where at the top there's these articles. So each week I'm putting out three to five articles, right. And they're going to LinkedIn and, and Twitter and Instagram. And then once people read those articles, then I'm hitting them with this call to action, join one of my email lists. Then you get further down the the funnel and now you have 20,000 email subscribers across three different newsletters. 
then you're trying to, one, build that trust with this free product you're giving them, but you're also trying to get them to buy the $97 guide. Oh, you don't have the the three, four, five thousand dollars to hire me as a writer. Spend the ninety-seven bucks and like learn copywriting in-house. Um, you're not into copywriting? Well, buy one of my poetry books. You don't like any of this, but you love my newsletters? Just buy me a Moscow Mule on Gumroad. It's fifteen bucks. Like so, then it's filtering people into these buckets where like, oh, this bucket makes sense for me. Like I that product really resonates with me. So the reason I spend so much time on my newsletters is because. Uh, it honestly has allowed me not to have to cold email anymore, right? I never have to cold email anyone and and uh, and it brings me a lot of joy too. If you're, if a person's just starting out, they're like, Cole, I, I love this. I want to do that. I want to get to 15,000 people on my email list. Uh, what do they have to do to get started in terms of building up someone who's going to look out for their email list? Is it doing some of the things you already mentioned? Yeah, I would say I would say the first race is to just get to a hundred, right? Um, and I think you do that by creating like a really solid uh, opt-in page where you have like a little email lander, um, and you you'll you can check those out on my site. But mine converted eighty percent, seventy percent, and I think Hemingway is much lower because it's paid. But um, then it's all about just moving traffic to that page, you know, just get people on that page. But I think like your race is to 100 and you can just go through your phone. And like if you're if you were legitimately taking it seriously, just write some of your your friends, your best friends, like just say, hey, I'm, I'm starting this thing. I'd love for you to subscribe to it and get to 100 people. And at the end of every newsletter you send out, just say, hey. I would love for you to send this or forward it to someone that you think would enjoy it. Um, so start small. And then I think like by having 100, 200 people on that, that uh, your email list, then you sort of have that audience that can kind of keep you going as you make that, that next jump to 1,000. But to get to 1,000, I think you have to, you have to really be taking it seriously. And you have to either have like this like a podcast, you have to have a regular article writing schedule where you're publishing a lot. You'd have to have like a Twitter where you're you're um, have a large enough following where you're you're tweeting things out where people are actually like reading them. You have you do have to be putting in the work to get to that larger kind of audience. And for you, do you write the the newsletter as like in real time each week, or do you write? Are you several weeks ahead so that you don't have to feel like that pressure? It's all real time for me. So um, because I, I think that that's one thing that has differentiated me a little bit as a writer is like my marketing and my advertising and my writing is very real time. And so like I'm I, I don't have this crazy overarching strategy. It's more so like it's more intuitive. And as I go, I, I kind of create and, and do cool things. Like one example is for the, the, the release of um, – of uh, my third book after her, I was like, what could I do for a pre-release that could be really cool? And so I decided to burn the book. So like me and my videographer, it's like 10 o'clock at night. I get this wild idea. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to burn the cover in the back. So we go to Kroger and we get um, lighter fluid and and, uh, a match. And like we light this thing on fire and we start taking pictures of the book. And I post it to Instagram. And the goal was people are going to be curious what the actual cover looks like because I burnt this cover that they'll buy the book and and it'll be a surprise once it comes like official launch day. People wrote me and they were like, that's the coolest book cover I've ever seen. 
And, and so I'm, I'm now like kind of panicking thinking, okay, I spent a thousand dollars getting this design perfectly and people are liking the charred version more. And now is this going to be some big upset when the real version comes out? <laughs> and so I had to like kind of pivot last minute. And so this is like what the, the burnt cover looks like. Right. I mean, it's, it's, that. it's really badly like burnt up. And, but anyways, like when that happened, I started to kind of freak out. And then I thought, well, this might be like even a cooler marketing strategy. So my next step was for each book, I might buy a blowtorch and just burn, lightly burn like every book because like who's received a charred book in the mail. Or if that doesn't work, I might buy a bunch of like vintage uh, matchboxes and then add a note in there that just says burn after reading. So building that into the marketing strategy for the book. But I think like sometimes as marketers, we're so caught up in this idea of like, you have to have a strategy, you have to have a strategy that we miss out on this small magical moments that can happen along the way. So I think you have to kind of create space for yourself to have the stupid like burn the book idea that turns into like the really cool marketing concept of like everyone gets a really cool like 1960s matchbox or everyone gets like a slightly charred book you know yeah wow that that's pretty fascinating because something that you did as part of a publicity marketing campaign turned into like wait a minute there's something really cool about this i'm going to change my game plan and then the story of the 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 process of the book cover becomes a part of the narrative of the book itself. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. Um, really clever. So I, I guess the advantage of doing something in real time is you get to be very topical. It's like, it's, it's like you're passionate about it right now, mm-hmm. but then you don't also then know the arc of how it all works out. So right. you're just going week by week. And so that's the, the I guess a preference because I, I forget which late night, uh, late night show comedians would do this where I think it was Letterman who would record like two or three shows together. So it had a certain energy because it was more efficient. And mm-hmm. then maybe Leno who did it like every single night, like a stand up. Yeah. And so his cadence was different. I, I might've mixed that up, but that's, that's you. You're like, I'm going to be here. I'm it's, it's Tuesday, it's Thursday. I'm going to write what I feel and get it ready for next week. But there's pressure to do that. Yeah. There's a ton right? of pressure. And I'll also say yeah. like, um, you know, you, you have, uh, I checked out your agency, right? And it's not just you, you have a team. I don't think that works for a team, right? Like if you have a bunch of people just saying you're gonna uh, you're, go rogue and do whatever you want, like I, don't, I just don't think that works. So if you're a solo, solo creator, I think you have a little bit more room to uh, create like in real time if that makes sense, you know, like if, like with your podcast, I, I know a lot of podcasters will batch podcasts, um, where they'll record a bunch of them in one day. Um, I totally could see where that makes sense with, with like how energy intensive that is. And like for creatives, you have to have that, that deep work where you can take three, four hours to really dive into a sales page or dive into like writing, uh, writing a book or a blog. And if you're recording every single day, um, you know, you probably have like 30 minutes of prep before you have the, the hour and a half long interview, then you have 30 minutes to just get back and focus afterwards. So I totally understand batching just for me, I've been able to keep things a lot more exciting, um, by, by kind of creating in real time. Yeah. I I don't know how people do that. I really don't. I don't know how people do six or five or I can't even do, I, I don't think I could do two of these a day. 
because there's the for me as an introvert there's recovery time yeah yeah right? like i'm really focused on our conversation and i'm gonna go lay down i'll probably have a cookie i don't know why after, you know after our call and then just mm-hmm. like okay i need to to recuperate and charge the batteries if you will so it's a different thing yeah yeah i think just yeah. it, everyone's a little different yeah okay so um Tell us a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm just cognizant of time here, maybe I have one or two more questions for you, but tell us a little bit more about, uh, the, the, your business model fascinates me. Hmm. And I, I like to share stories of success where people can have an alternative way of working and living. So mm-hmm. there's, we, we already talked about it, the service part that you do by day, a hired gun to write copy for different marketing campaigns and for different companies. And then there's the the passive income stuff that you do. I think you said you have two courses, one on copywriting and one on, what is it? Um, Freelan- freelancing. Freelancing, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Copywriting and freelancing. And then there's your poetry at night. Um, then there's this thing, this paid Slack community. What is that? Yeah, so that's called the the A-team. And um, I I wanted to sort of compile this group of really awesome creatives and people in advertising and entrepreneurs and, and writers um, because something like I've recognized is like I've been, you know, I've been lucky to, to, to garner like a pretty decent size audience. Not every freelancer has that luxury. They might go their entire career where they don't have a list of thousands of people that they can email, right? Um, so for a lot of freelancers, like you can make really good money by having great connections, right? Where um, you might be a freelance graphic designer who's friends with a bunch of other freelance graphic designers. And if they get too busy, they can pass you off work. Um, so what I wanted to do with the A-team was kind of create this this town where uh, this online environment where people can learn from one another, but they can also pass off leads to one another. Um, so like I'm in a position now where I'm really lucky to be able to turn the projects that don't make sense for me down, you know, whether it, I don't agree with like the product or it just doesn't resonate with me or like the budget is so low that I can't do my best work for the budget. So like the A team is this place where if something like that happens, I can just drop the lead in there, drop the email address in there. And now, um, freelancers who maybe charge less who are still who do still do solid work have this opportunity to reach out to these these brands and on top of that like you're you're getting this this cool environment where people seem to be like pretty supportive of one another and like open to learn and i think we have a few agency owners in there who are further along in their career who also want to kind of help people up too so it's uh as an introvert it's been a little bit of a weird place you know to operate but um, I run it with my brother too. Um, so he he helps like manage the whole community, which takes a lot of a lot of the pressure off of me. So is that is a place where people can meet other uh, people from different disciplines, but also to hire one another and also to get leads? Is that the the main? Thing? Yeah. So the 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 main kind of uh, I think if we we're to say there's like th- like the three benefits. One is. Uh, being able to get direct feedback on all your work, right? So like we'll have graphic designers in there who drop a website they just designed and they're asking for feedback. So feedback is huge. I think the next thing is is leads and sort of partnerships that haven't been happening, that don't happen as much outside of like a community like that where um, like uh, I think a, a huge thing for all graphic designers and copywriters is to find another person who they really respect 
uh, in the opposing field and then just partner up with them and say, hey, like there's so many times I start writing copy and I need a, a web designer, you know, be top of mind for that person. So leads and partnerships is kind of the second uh, major benefit. And then I think the third is just like that community we do monthly meetups where just online we'll do like these speed dating rounds where everyone gets in and you have five minutes to talk to someone face to face then it switches and you do it with the next person so i think the community aspect is a huge selling point just because we haven't really gotten that this past year and a half with covid and stuff yeah we definitely need that we're feeling the hunger for social connection and to be along to belong to part of a community what is the price for that yeah, so we um so we've been we tested out various pricing. Uh, right now, it's at a hundred dollars a month, um, and something we really want to do with it is just keep it small. So two hundred and fifty people, uh, and that price point uh, forces people to one. I think it like filters out those who aren't serious about it. But when you're paying a hundred bucks a month, like you're you're taking it more seriously too and you want to get your money's worth um and and so that's it's been good to price it higher there might be a day where we adjust it some but um the 50 to 100 dollar range is is where we've kind of been testing that sounds pretty reasonable especially if you're able to get those three things like uh getting feedback i mean what would somebody pay for feedback and if it's good feedback yeah it's going to help you grow and the whole idea about leads and and uh, being able to 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 get to put money back in your own pocket that's that's a good hook mm-hmm. for sure yeah awesome okay so if people want to find more about your your writing uh, your poetry and everything else that you do where's the best place to send them so uh for the poetry just instagram um my my handle's at cole underscore shaper and then uh, if they want to connect with me more in advertising and like the the article long form writing side of things I'm just uh, at uh, just honeycopy.com and I have a bunch of newsletters there where they can subscribe and I'll be in touch in a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the the website honeycopy.com is where they can find everything, right? Everything, yeah. In terms everything. of like different newsletters. Okay, fantastic. You you are available for like uh, contract work, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So people want to find out they just go go to your website and hire you is that the way it works yeah it works that way or um they just a lot of them just respond to my newsletter um or they'll reach out on instagram which is funny to me because that's all poetry it's not really about advertising but they'll say you know we uh, we'd love to hire you for this and um so yeah it's 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 mainly just uh through the newsletter that people reach out and, and instagram some it was a real pleasure talking to you, Cole. Yeah, man, this was, this was a lot of fun. My name is Cole Schaefer, and you are listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash Chris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. 
If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.